Welcome back, friends, nerds, librarians, to episode 22 of the SS Librarianship Podcast. 22! And we have a doozy for you today. It was so much fun. It's an amazing interview. We have a great interview with our uh, fellow MLISer and zine celebrity, Mm -hmm. uh, Matthew Murray. If there is such a thing, I suppose (laughs) that's debatable. He's the the zine reviewer from 365 Zines a Year Online, which is a very popular zine Mm -hmm. review blog. He's also the um, creator and, I suppose, editor-in-chief of Two-Fisted Librarians, which (laughs) is a new uh, sort of pulp sci-fi adventure librarian themed zine that uh, folks from our department at UBC have been contributing to. Yeah. And he's here to talk to us about what zines are, a bit of their history, and how they're disseminated and collected and sort of where libraries interact with them in those kinds of areas. And it was one of those conversations that I feel can be expanded into much larger conversations down the line once uh, (laughs) once we get a few more questions. Because I was just, I don't know anything about zines. And so... No, and Matthew turned out to be quite the expert. Yeah. So, um, and as he was leaving, he said, and now folks I know who are also into zines are going to listen to this and tell me about all the things I missed. And I said, well, you know, you're just gonna have to come on again exactly so so if you listen to this and then you're like i still have questions about zines let us know and we will get you in touch with matthew or we'll just have him on for oh yeah a second episode yeah a q a type of thing well that's it's it's a great episode i'm really excited for you guys to listen to it so we might as well get this one started i'm ali sullivan and i actually like the sailing parts of wind waker i'm sam mills and I'm old enough to kick your butt through your skull and splatter your brains on the wall. That's creepy, dude. So we've had a nice little week off and uh, means we must have had something to do <laughs> in our week off. So Sam, what's been on what's been on your mind this week? Uh, well, I've been actually doing something that I said I wasn't going to do, which is I started rereading something last night. <laughs> Um, that I wanted to talk about because we talked a lot in the first episode of this show about um, Orson Scott Card because it was right after that whole, you know, people were boycotting Ender's Game as well they should have both because it looked terrible and because no one wants to give Orson Scott Card money these days. (laughs) But um, I started rereading Past Watch. You guys ever read that? No. Uh, So it's the subtitle is The Redemption of Christopher Columbus. And it's a standalone science fiction novel he wrote in the 90s and is essentially about um, the earth has been like almost destroyed by our horrendous 20th and 21st century activities and it's sort of in a recovery period lots of people have died but they've also developed this technology where they can look into the past and observe history sort of directly Uh, and this woman starts working on a project to record the lives of slaves and starts to get more and more intense about you know the causes of slavery and how it fit into all of these civilizations. And then she discovers what she thinks is evidence that the machines they're using are actually affecting the past through their observation. And she launches this big project to figure out what some of the focal points were in history and she, see if she can find one so that she can use this newfound ability to go back and change things for the better and sort of prevent the last you know 500 years of calamities that her world has been through. And a lot of this hinges around Columbus and when he came to the Americas and how he came to the Americas and what happened after he came. And it's just fascinating to read. Um, And it sort of jumps back and forth between her time and this sort of fictionalized first person biography of Columbus. It's really, really neat. I would would recommend it for sure. Except that it's written by Orson Scott Card. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just buy it used. (laughs) <laughs> no it's a it's a weird subject for me because i still find that i can go back and read his stuff and still enjoy it and still get values of tolerance and togetherness and care for your fellow man out of it even though he has this weird emotional achilles heel where there's just a segment of the population that he cannot empathize with it's so strange it's such a strange weird contrast with his writing so it actually includes like a, a fictionalized biography of Christopher Columbus. Like, does it actually try to redeem? Actually, like, because his behavior was fairly disgusting, if I recall my history. Yeah, it really paints him as this very like committed, p- 
passionate, zealous even um, person bent on this mission too. And this is a minor spoiler, although it happens fairly early in the novel, but one of the things that they discover that gives them hope that they could go back and change things is that they're trying to find the point in Columbus's life where he stopped planning a crusade, which was initially what he wanted to do, and turn his eyes westward instead to the sort of undiscovered area of the world, undiscovered area of the world. Um, and they find that actually someone, and their inference is someone from a previous iteration of Past Watch in, a past, in a, another timeline, actually sent him a vision that they can see as well <laughs> through their technology of the Holy Trinity telling him to turn away from the East and towards the West, <laughs> which of course raises all kinds of controversy. But then they start speculating about what might have happened to make a previous iteration of themselves decide to turn him like that. And he's, he's very much um, depicted as sort of a, a tool almost <laughs> of a very brilliant, very com committed person, but because of his faith, he's taken advantage of like this, which is interesting. Um, and they don't, later on when it gets to the point where they talk about his voyage and the things that happened when his soldiers made landfall in America, they don't whitewash <laughs> what those soldiers did. But uh, yeah, it's, it's his, the depiction of him is more ambiguous. There's a lot of empathy for him in the story. Why? <laughs> maybe because Card needed to hang his hat on him, or maybe it's another weakness of Card's that he sees him as this great white man from the past. I don't know. It would be interesting, and I've never done it, to go and read some more historical and less fictional <laughs> biographical materials about Columbus and see where he fudged things in the story to make the story work. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I've been up to. I started rereading that last night, and I'm like halfway through already. What about you, Matthew? Um, I just finished reading uh, Biomega by Sutomo Nihai, whose name I have probably just butchered. <laughs> uh, it's a, a manga series, a science fiction one. And this is a guy whose uh, work I've been reading for like a decade. I really like it. There's mm. m More of it is available in English now, which is great, because I started reading it in quotation marks in Japanese <laughs> because there was so little dialogue. It barely oh, so mattered. Oh, you sort of follow the yeah. story well, like, just I, visuals? Honestly, even with the dialogue in English, it's not, it doesn't really make that much more sense. Hmm. <laughs> um, so, like, the original one was called Blame, with an exclamation point at the end. Hmm. Um, and I still remember the, the jacket text, which was actually in English, which was Adventurous Seeker Killy in the Cyber Dungeon Quest. <laughs> How could you resist? I know. And so, like, the, uh, the art is, is very sort of, like, goth technology sci-fi stuff and it was about this guy just kind of wandering around these bizarre dystopian buildings and shooting things with laser guns all right i really enjoyed it he also weirdly did a wolverine comic <laughs> <laughs> which is basically the exact same thing except same it aesthetic? has wolverine walking around the same place <laughs> Cutting people up with his claws instead of shooting them. It's like basically a crossover with all of his other comics. <laughs> Wolverine just wanders into his landscape. I'm pretty sure. Like, I haven't read it in a while, but I think he just gets teleported there. <laughs> and then is just ends like up like a, a context for where these landscapes came from? Is there like a civilization that created them? Or? I think it's just some yeah. sort of generic dystopian future. I don't really okay. remember. The one that I just finished reading, Biomega, has all this like pseudoscience stuff about like of nanotechnology polymers and and things that recreate like physical things in other forms hmm. um and yeah lots of stuff like that and then like halfway through the series like what just said on earth and his first it's about like the sort of zombie plague and people that are trying to prevent it or maybe spread it depending on what what group they're in uh it then this is like oh and then everything blows up and then the next book starts, and you're like, oh, now we're in space. <laughs> <laughs> on this, like, there's, like, there's no through line, several, there's no characters. That... No, the, the characters are oh, still okay. there. But it's like, you're now on this, like, several hundred million kilometer long, like, wire that's, like, has a, a hundred mile diameter or something around it. And it's just it's this really long thing that floats through space, and it's filled with monster, more monsters <laughs> and, like, sort of weird semi-human space elevator gone horribly wrong it, 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 there was yeah there was a space elevator yeah. that this that this yeah. so it, <laughs> it's super like it gets by for me like entirely on style i love the art that's in it he apparently used to be an architecture student and like mm. and has an architecture degree and so i think 
you kind of see this in the way he like the buildings are all like designed. They look weird, and you probably can't build them in real life. <laughs> but there, there's a lot more emphasis put on them than in a lot of other stuff. Um, and and this one also has a weird bear that can talk, and apparently has a human brain inside it, shooting <laughs> stuff and riding a motorcycle. Awesome. So that yeah. enough is a selling point. <laughs> Does he have like a like a goal or a quest or something that he's trying to complete or is it pretty much just like There's really... usually like find the cure okay. or find a person who is the cure. So there's in in Biomega they're they're trying to find these people with like 24 chromosomes that are immortal and can somehow save stuff. I don't <laughs> Like I read the like, I read some of these books twice. The Star Trek movie yeah no? okay yeah. not allowed to talk like about i read that. some of them twice and i'm still just like i don't really get what the plot is <laughs> i'm like who is this person what are they doing and it doesn't help that like i'm i'm generally really bad at remembering names in japanese series mm -hmm. which i feel is like really a failing of my part like i've read like you know 30 books in, in a manga and i'm just like i don't know what the main character's name is <laughs> <laughs> um and then so in this one there's like two of the characters who are like I don't know if they're both bad guys, but they're both like antagonists to mm -hmm. the main character who both have names that are like N something, something, something. <laughs> like, like they're not Japanese names. They're mm -hmm. just like weird names. I'm like, I, what, which one was this? Which, which weird, like <laughs> immortal robot creature were you? <laughs> so his strength is more in the architectural design than in the, in the naming of things. Cause that's, that's a talent in and of itself, right? People talk about, to reference Star Trek again, Gene Roddenberry and how he always wanted all those strong R and K sounds for his heroes, and they're really memorable, right? Well, I think it's really hard to say in these cases because it is translated from Japanese. Yeah. Um, apparently, like the the earlier one I said, Blame, um, was apparently supposed to be Blam. It was supposed to be the sound <laughs> a gun makes, but in Japanese it's still called Blame. Um, and the main character's name is actually Killy. So when I said Adventure Seeker Killy, it's not bad English. It's the guy's name is Killy. Like with a Y? K-I-L-L-Y. That's amazing. And I thought I was just like, do you mean like killing? Like, I don't really get what this means. Um, so, yeah. Huh. All right. <laughs> well, what about you, Allie? Well, I'm also going to go back to a to an oldie but a goodie because um, I sort of rediscovered it on, on Netflix the other night. Uh, we were looking for something to watch and just kind of, you know, flipping through the, the menus as you do. And we came across, apparently there is a large collection of Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix. Canadian or American Netflix? American Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> which is, uh, which is unfortunate, but, um, but it was just amazing. It was one of those things where I, I was introduced to MST3K by my, like, by my nerdy boyfriend when I was 15. And, can I just interrupt and tell you how I found out about MST3K? Yes. Fan fiction. <laughs> MST3K fan fiction was the first... that made fun of other fan fiction. <laughs> I had no idea what any of the characters looked like because it oh, wasn't man. on TV in Canada. Yeah. And then it was like a year later that I finally <laughs> saw what they looked like. I'm like, those robots look kind of crummy. Yeah, they look awful. Um, <laughs> that's like the 90s version of discovering things through seeing gifs of them on Tumblr. <laughs> like, that's amazing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we, we found this and it was the episode we ended up watching was a movie called Laser Blast. So if we're going along that same kind of, uh, adventures of, oh, it was such a bad movie. Like, it was just truly atrocious. And, um... It was one of those things where it's like I'd kind of forgotten that MST3K existed. And then I came back to it, and there's nothing in this world that makes me laugh quite as hard as, as that show. I don't know what it is about it. I don't know what it is about those characters. But, um, yeah, no, I'm just, like, cackling and rolling around on the floor. It was, it was great. So <laughs> I guess for those of the uninitiated, um, Mystery, Science 3, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, um, it's one of those things where a lot of people use it, and if you don't know what it is, you've probably seen something approximating it. So it's, or, or making fun of it. Um, so what they do is they watch, it's a, a guy and two robots who are stuck on a space station uh, called the Satellite of Love. And they're part of these like evil science experiments where they're made to watch really, really horrible science fiction movies. 
and, and other movies and other movies they do some other movies but it's it's largely kind of bad science fiction and uh the way you watch the show is that you're watching the movie but in the bottom sort of tenth of the screen you can see the outline of movie chairs as if you were sitting in a movie theater and then the outlines of the three characters and they're just you know having peanut gallery style commentary throughout the whole movie and the jokes are hilarious the movies are terrible and it's 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 really really fun i think everyone's probably got like a a ripoff of mr science theater 3000 that they saw when they were a kid right like if they're sort of around our age like i've never watched much mst3k but when i was a kid ed the sock was a really big thing <laughs> on like much music or whatever and that was the sort of like canadian music channel answer to mst3k and it was terrible but as a little kid it was like sort of still thrilled by seeing offensive things on tv it was very entertaining <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the most classic one is they did do a I think they did most episodes were just on the sci-fi channel. Um it it started on a cable access network. Yeah, yeah. And then it was on the comedy network and then okay. the sci-fi channel. Yeah. And it was only in the later years on the sci-fi where they only did sci-fi films because sci-fi channel was like, don't stop doing other stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. But um but uh yeah, I I just remember I remember being introduced to it and watching it all the time and then kind of it completely fell out of my mind and then I found it again and it's it's great. Um, they still do some of the stuff. Um, like Rift Tracks is yeah. one and I can't remember what the other one is called. Cinema something. Um, but they do it like they do live shows and mm -hmm. stuff as well which is neat and you can still get they you can download a lot of just like mp3 tracks that you can sync up with dvds <laughs> yeah. so they're, they're they can now do it to movies that they don't actually own the rights to <laughs> have you ever seen um one of the things that's kind of like that have you ever seen wizard people by brad neely so he redubbed the first harry potter movie <laughs> and it's it's really awful my husband thinks it's hilarious but i'm just oh i was just gonna say i think i remember that because i remember john attempting to tell me about it and then starting to laugh too hard and so i still don't really know what it's about but it must be hilarious um, it's it's funny some of it i think there's just a, a part of my heart that gets defensive whenever harry potter is uh, brought between the crosshairs of something but uh i should give it another chance now that i'm i'm less reactive <laughs> to those kinds of things especially since jk rowling man she's been saying some stuff she just wants publicity for a new book. It's true, but it makes me sad. <laughs> well, did you do anything else fun this week, Sam? Um, I did finish Night Film, which I think I maybe mentioned briefly. And it was, uh, I would still recommend it. You were saying, have you seen some of the interactive content, Matthew? I've seen a yeah. little bit of it. Did that enhance the experience of it for you? Like, I felt like it was what little I saw was like reading a wikipedia page explaining mm. what was like background events which i think is really kind of cool okay um but she does a lot of that in the novel yeah. though like there are a lot of kind of newspaper clippings and screenshots from websites that yeah. are giving background to what's I, happening in I the plot i saw it very briefly several yeah. months ago so i don't really recall the only thing i remember was that there were dot onion sites in it oh and i don't think anyone else that was looking at the book had any idea what those were <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I really enjoyed the book. The ending was a little like it faded out and then it faded back in a few too many times, <laughs> like a la, you know, the end of Return of the King or whatever. But um, but it was enjoyable. But I feel like kind of by the time I got to the end end, I had no desire to return to any content related to it. And I didn't realize there was um, interactive content until I got to the last page of the ebook and it was like go here for interactive content and i was like no i'm done with this book so <laughs> but uh, i would recommend i wouldn't recommend it as highly as her first novel but i would still recommend it have you used any augmented reality fiction before not really like i mean i guess some of the stuff on jasper ford's website but that's more it's not necessarily tied in with any specific parts of the books it's more just pieces of the world that he created that are being enhanced what about you is there um, some really good stuff out there that you've experienced Oh my good stuff. <laughs> I've definitely experienced some. The one I'm probably most familiar with is the Marvel Comics stuff. Oh, okay. They have a bunch of augmented reality in, in some of their comics. And some of it is really neat and it shows like, you know, animation of stuff or mm. it shows like the 
the pencils of the page you're looking at or interviews with the creators or just background information. Um, one of them was really cool that I really liked was about like they interviewed the scientists about like what would happen if like an asteroid collided with earth or like the sun went supernova or something. I can't, some horrible earth shattering event. And they actually interviewed a scientist about what would happen if this, <laughs> how could this happen? And I thought that was really cool. They're tying in some of that sort of physics of superhero stuff. That's awesome. Another one was just a slideshow of dogs that the editors in the Marvel office owned. <laughs> That's sort of humanizing, I guess. It was just super weird. I'm like, I thought at first it was like dogs of Marvel. I'm like, oh, that's kind of fun. It's going to be like pictures of all the different Mar dogs in the Marvel universe. It'll be like Lockjaw and I can't remember any other dogs. Uh, that's Daredevil's dog. Me. No one. So. Um, but it wasn't even that. It was just like photos of their dogs. I'm like, I really don't care. <laughs> yeah, you can take that kind of stuff too far. I mean, it's just like, like anything that sort of augments, like DVD commentaries. I mean, I can count on one hand the amount of DVD commentaries I've heard that are actually worth listening to that give you something new to think about. Right? I like the Venture Brothers ones. Have you ever oh, listened to those? I haven't. I haven't really ever watched Venture Brothers. I really like Venture Brothers, hmm. but I, I also listen to like all the commentary tracks for the first couple, and they were just kind of not even about the, sh the episodes they were watching. <laughs> um, it was just that it was like kind of like a podcast. They were just kind of telling stories about yeah. stuff. And those and were kind of that the was best really ones, fun, really. Yeah. yeah. Like, I really enjoy the Buffy ones because you get people like Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard and Marty Noxon and whoever talking about writing, which is really interesting, right? Or um, or when they do something stunty with it, like the Tropic Thunder um, actor's commentary, Robert Downey Jr. stays in character. And then when he switches characters on screen, he'll switch to the next character in the commentary. And he's not actually himself till the closing credits. It's pretty great. But for the most part, it's, yeah, it's sort of for the sake of doing it because then you can say you've done it and you can charge more. I don't know. The thing I felt about Night Film too was that I was reading it as an ebook. So I was getting, you know, color versions of all of the little news clippings and website screen caps and whatever. And so that was a really missed opportunity because if while I was reading, I'd been able to click <laughs> and see the augmented content, then maybe that would have actually enhanced my experience of reading it. I'm imagining like the worst possible scenario of like people implementing that where you need, you're reading it as an ebook and then you need another device to like oh, scan God. the page in order to look at the AR oh, content yeah, yeah. and another thing. Yeah. Or if you're reading it on a tablet, which I was, and it's some sort of file format that you can't open or something and you have to go find your computer and yeah. That could be kind of a nightmare of, you know, breaking you out of the, yeah. When I was a kid, I was really into coming up with, like, what songs would match these parts of books that I liked, you know, like, soundtrack-wise. And that I always thought that would be a neat idea to, like, release an album of songs that enhance the content of a book somehow. You see, you see that happening with people making playlists for, yeah. like, comics and books and stuff. And people are like, you should say. listen to this at this scene. Yeah, and then you're like, but this is a terrible song. I don't like you <laughs> as much anymore. Authors will sometimes also like tell you what music they were listening to when they were writing. So, because I know, I know that um, John does a lot of soundtracks for our D and D games and stuff like that, and he's always very picky and very choosy about what music goes where, and gets annoyed when I play my own music, which I do. I did a, I did that when I was running. Uh, uh, what was it called? Space alert? No, space. I can't remember what it's called now. <laughs> this like s retro sci-fi um, RPG. Mm -hmm. um, and so at one point I was like, yeah, I'm going to play this ridiculous mashup that's like uh, mashing up like a swing song with Will Smith rapping over it. <laughs> and it actually sounds really good, but it also doesn't sound like any music anywhere. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, hip hop swing. Oh. This, is, this is a great genre of music that they listen to in space. <laughs> So it's almost like a little bit Cowboy Bebop style, or? No. No. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. And uh, this next week coming up for us is also reading week. So uh, we should have some more Mind Grapes for you next week. <laughs> this week on Class Z, we have our friend here who's a big zine enthusiast, uh, the blogger who reviews zines. And what is it, the third hit on Google? I'm, it depends on, you, you know, you know this about Google. It depends on what account is logged in, what browser you're using, where you're browsing from. Oh, you're just being humble. Um, so we're here to talk a little bit about zines and uh, what they are, why libraries are important, and, and how libraries collect them. So I guess our first question, let's start with the basics. Matthew, what is a zine? 
uh, the most basic definition is a self-published physical publication. Okay. Um, the word zine comes from magazine mm-hmm. and fanzine, uh, and it really just means something that's self-published, and this can mean a number of different things. A lot of people view it as you photocopy it yourself or you print it off yourself, but I know that some people make zines that they actually just send to printers mm-hmm. and have printed in, in small quantities because they're like, they're making 500 copies or like a thousand copies and that's too many for them to really want to staple themselves yeah and so are they they're usually kind of like small scale syndicated publications they're not you don't you like you said only like 500 or a thousand copies you don't make a lot that is a lot for zines that is a lot for zines yeah (laughs) most of them are under 100 copies Mm -hmm. per per issue and who makes zines everybody can make (laughs) zines um that's the aspect of zines that i really enjoy is the the DIY do it yourself or do it together theme of them, which is that you don't have to have a lot of experience creating content or doing layout or design or drawing or any of that stuff. You can just do it and have a physical thing that you can like show to other people. And it's almost sort of part of the aesthetic or whatever of zines that they do look homemade, right? Some of them are. Yeah. Some of people go for super professional hmm. looking things and they look just like magazines. Okay. Um, I have ones from people that are actual graphic designers and they just put a lot of effort into like using design and layout programs and trying to make them look really nice. Awesome. Other people try and make them like the look in quotation marks that is sort of stereotypical is like typewriter fonts and like cutting and pasting stuff. But they can they can be either side of that. You can also look at stuff like a lot of comics kind of start in the, the photocopied mini comic format, which is a type of zine. Mm-hmm. And stuff that is published like that goes on to be published as books. Uh, American Born Chinese by Jean Luan Yang, which is like a huge book, started as a mini comic. Hmm. And so that's something that a lot of people probably wouldn't know was like started as this like probably, I don't know how many copies he was making, but like this super small, like fo- basically photocopied thing. Wow. So in terms of the actual content, I mean, obviously, because everyone can do it and lots of different people do it, I would imagine that the content's very sort of across the board, but other themes or topics that kind of dominate the, the field of zines or? One thing I thought was really funny when I was at the Portland Zine Symposium last summer was I was thinking about what brings all of these different people together mm-hmm. to the space. And the thing that brings them all together is basically I like to photocopy things, <laughs> which I think is just really like hilarious because you can be friends with people and enjoy their zines, but they're writing about completely different stuff. Um, the most common zine at events like that, at least, is probably per zine or personal zine, which is sort of like public diarying, diarying. Okay. Um, and for that reason, a lot of the time, they people kind of compare that stuff to like blogs or like live journal and stuff like that. But there's so many other types. There's like zines about bicycles or gender politics or fiction zines Mm -hmm. or my mind is kind of blanking because there's so many different stuff there's a lot of zines about like diy stuff so telling people how to do stuff which might be cooking or making diy sex toys or any number of things so kind of philosophy-wise or ethos-wise, if there is one, and obviously there's maybe not a single one that dominates, but it's akin to something like makerspaces in the sense that it's encouraging people to... Zines are actually in makerspaces yeah. sometimes, which is really neat. That um, makes and a lot I of really, sense. I really <laughs> like that idea. Um, but it is just encouraging people to, to make something themselves mm-hmm. and do it themselves. And that's something that I really enjoy in a lot of different areas. Um, like an area of art that I've been involved with is artist trading cards, which are pieces of art that can be any medium that are basically just the same size as like ice hockey cards. So they're 3.5 by 2.5 inches Mm -hmm. and you make them and then you just trade them with other people. (laughs) So you're not even like, there's no money involved with it. Anybody can do it because a lot of them are just done with like collage and stuff. And so when I like I've taught workshops on this, I'm like, you can do this because any if like a six year old can cut pictures out of a magazine and glue them to a piece of cardboard, <laughs> then you can also do this. That's great. That's such a great little sort of microcosm of the like production consumption cycle that sort of new media, quote unquote, is supposed to be empowering us all to do. Right? Well, I think it's really interesting to see, especially digitally, even in 
like the not very long time that like the World Wide Web and the internet have been around, the sort of cycles of people of the ways people have created where I look back to like the late nineties and early two thousands and so many people were like learning HTML so they could make their own terrible websites to put up <laughs> on like GeoCities or wherever. Mm-hmm. And then as those were replaced by things like LiveJournal and and later blogs, you had people maybe still creating content but not doing it in the same way, not creating in the they're same way. They're creating the structure. They're creating the content, I guess. But yeah. now you see a lot of people creating apps, which I think is really exciting, hmm. and, and going that way and, and creating that sort of way. And so they're taking ownership of the form again mm-hmm. as well as the content. Whereas like, if you look at like what you see is what you get, WYSIWYG web editors, mm-hmm. they've gotten to the point now where you can make really like pretty nice-looking websites without any knowledge of web design. And as someone who actually, well, not web design, but like HTML code or CSS, yeah. and as someone who actually likes doing HTML code and has really enjoyed doing that, my most recent websites have just been done using WYSIWYG editors yeah. because it's so much faster and it looks still looks nice. And it does free you up to focus on the content, right? Mm-hmm. Prime example of this is the sslibrarianship.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when did zines kind of get started as a medium? The 1930s, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even a bit earlier than that. But in the 1930s, uh, the first fanzines were really being produced. And these were science fiction zines uh, created by people that were fans of science fiction yeah um and this is it's really neat if you go back and and look at them um you see that they were using this is before photocopiers and everything so they were using different printing methods Mm -hmm. and they would have like mimeograph machines and like these hand cranked things that you could buy off the back of like probably pulps and stuff (laughs) yeah that that would allow you and they were using like um gelatin press stuff to reproduce certain types of color images mm-hmm. uh, it's really fascinating to go back and look at look at some of the stuff that was there so that was the earliest from the 30s and those have continued up until today they're so produced though they're a much smaller segment of mm-hmm. the zine community now because so much of that communication is down done online yeah uh, but that was the first and then the next probably larger uh expansion was in like the the 70s and 80s with the punk movement and stuff and this the 90 like the 80s and 90s was probably like the high point of zines theoretically like in people public consciousness and this mm-hmm. was when like the whole riot girl movement was really popular and a lot of that sort of like feminism was spread through zines mm-hmm. and the the counterculture ideas there and that was sort of probably both influenced by and influencing the other parts of the art scene at that time, right? Like I'm thinking of um, the Gorilla Girls. Their art is very reminiscent of the way the zines are put together, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to work at a gallery that owns a lot of original Gorilla Girls stuff this past summer, and it was really, really cool. Yeah. Very um, about making statements more than about making detailed homemade art. Like a lot of what they're doing is just cutting things out or putting words together, but it's still very powerful. You've also got like sort of parallel versions in other countries because I'm mostly speaking about English speaking Mm -hmm. countries. Um, So, for example, in the Soviet Union, the Samizat uh, was sort of the equivalent of zine as the term they used for zine. And possibly my proudest moment ever was when a Russian blog described me as a Samizat maker. (laughs) And I was like, ah! So, (laughs) these were used, these were like basically the same thing, except they were used for spreading um, like political ideas that were not popular with the the government Hmm. which is yeah if you can if you can own your own means of production so to speak and do the all of the dissemination yourself then you can say what you want to say yeah um so what has been your involvement in zines like how did you get involved and i was made first exposed to them through um like being around the edges of the punk scene Mm -hmm. um when i was in high school um and being involved with like social activism sort of stuff and seeing Zines about political act, like ideas and vegetarian stuff mm-hmm. and punk music and all of that. And so I started making them in the early 2000s. And the first one I made was like in the Perzine format where it was about a trip I took to Montreal for a conference, for cool. a university newspaper conference. It had like a bunch of photos and, and stuff like that in it. 
and since then I've continued to make them on and off. I've made a number of um, travel zines, so just ones about trips that I've taken. So I made ones. I spent a long time, uh, several years living in Asia, and so I did ones about traveling in Thailand and Cambodia and v- Vietnam. I think yeah, and I've also done them about Russia, traveling in Russia. Hmm. Uh, and then since then I've also done fiction zines and anthologies like Two-Fisted Librarians, which is <laughs> my current one, but I've also done super ridiculous ones. Like I did one that was a review of, uh, potato chips and corn snacks. Um, awesome. that was super fun to do. <laughs> and I did a Lindy Hop themed zine, which is like Lindy Hop is a f- type of swing dancing yeah. that I'm involved with. Um, so lots of stuff like that. Very yeah. Cool. So what... Making sort of these personal zines, what was your experience of the the dissemination process? Like, as someone outside of the zine community, I'm wondering how that works. Because it's obviously probably very different from a traditional publishing model, right? Is it libraries, or is it just sort of passing them through the community? Or A lot of it is just passing them around to people you know. Yeah. Um, but also pen pals and stuff are really heavily and so people write a lot of letters to each other in this in this community because if you're sending someone a physical thing anyway you might as well write them a letter (laughs) uh but also probably the biggest thing so you also have uh distros which distribute zines and so they are someone that will have or someone or someone's uh, like an organization that will have a lot of different zines from different people and so you could write to them and order zines okay so they're sort of of centralized Mm -hmm. distribution yeah they work as distributors and lots of people can have these and they can be like big or they can be small Hmm. and so like i have friends and even my brother used to run distros uh and they would order stuff from individuals and from other groups and then just like sell it to at punk shows and at Hmm. other events like that now i think a large portion of it is at zine events and so there's a lot of zine symposium and zine conventions um happening in like all over the world and these are really exciting and so a lot of people come to those to table which is when you have your own table and you have your stuff up for sale or trade and you trade zines with other people other zine makers Mm -hmm. and you sell your zines and it's really interesting because people come to these events and they like might travel hundreds or thousands of kilometers to get to them not to make money (laughs) and so like that's really the i think the crucial thing about zines is that like nobody is trying to make money off these things Mm -hmm. they just want to probably cover their costs yeah they cover the costs so they can keep even then pretty much everyone just loses money on it (laughs) because you end up just giving them away to people all the time or trading with other people well it's got a lot in common with i suppose any sort of hobby or side passion in that way right yeah Yeah. definitely so you have these people traveling just to like meet up with people that they've never met before, but mm-hmm. have read their zines and trading with them and also selling some to some people that come by. But I think something that's really interesting about the zine community is how so much of it is so many of the zines that you're other people, so many of the people that read zines are also people that make zines. And so it's, it yeah. really is a community that kind of interact and shares with each other what they're producing. And we, it's so funny because we talk about and we hear so much about the internet and the web being this, you know, tool of democratization where now we can all produce as well as consume. And that's been going on for ages before the internet and communities like this. It's important to remember too, right? Um, so, I mean, I guess coming around to the, the library connection with all of this, I would imagine that just on an independent level, like everything else about zines, there are probably independent zine libraries that spring up. There are a number of zine libraries that are around um, the world as mm-hmm. well. Uh, some of them are associated with larger groups, so like social centers and similar things like that. Mm-hmm. Also, public libraries have zine collections, some of them do, and also you find zine collections in the academic libraries as well. Okay. So they do they do show up in like the entire range, not the mm. entire range. You're not going to find them in like some weird libraries. I guess. <laughs> corporate libraries probably There's don't have probably many zines. some corporate library out there somewhere that for some reason has some zines in it. <laughs> but yeah, maybe I, f- I, I kind of, d- I feel like that's super sinister. Like whatever reason <laughs> they have zines is not a, is not a good one. The anti-zine or something. So zine libraries can be really interesting because a lot of the time 
um, they're run by people that don't actually have any library experience. Mm. So they don't have an MLIS. They might not have worked in a library, but they just really want to have this place where people can come and find zines. And they're really important because, like I said before, zines have really low print runs a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And so, and they're really treated like ephemera. So like that zine that's in your library might be the only one that exists anywhere. Yeah, so it's not even an issue of a cost barrier with public libraries. A lot of the time that's what that is, right? But it's more of a just availability mm -hmm. and numbers game, yeah. And so for like the bigger zines, it's possible for a library to like look online and find out what are the best zines to have. But like also best is totally, yeah. depends on what you're looking for in your collection. Mm -hmm. um, but some zines don't like it's it's hard to get them, especially if like they're more than a couple of years old. Mm. They might not be in print available anywhere anymore. So in terms of more traditional collections like public libraries, are there any that you've been to that have really great zine collections? Uh, the Vancouver Public Library has a zine collection in two different branches right now. Mm. Um, they have a zine collection that's been there for like six years or so now at the central branch downtown. Uh, and it just recently moved. It used to be next to the DVDs and graphic novels, but it's just moved up one floor. Hmm. Um, and nobody knows where it is. <laughs> they well, that's sort of an across-the-board thing at BPL right now, though. They replaced it with Blu-ray DVDs. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's a whole interesting conversation there, I suppose, right? Um, so they have a collection there, um, and they're... They seem like when I've talked to them about it, they seem pretty enthusiastic about having a strong local collection hmm. because you really can view zines as a way to collect like information and opinions that are not reflected in pop in mainstream media. Yeah. And so you get a lot of stuff from, like I said, a lot of the feminist zines that have existed, but also stuff from uh, people that are like lower class, poor, which mm -hmm. is fairly common in the punk scene people surviving with like no or very low amounts of money um zines from people of color which is not as common as it should be it's hmm. it's kind of it can be kind of seen that zines are a fairly white thing but it does depend hmm. on where you are as well with that and so it can be a great way to sort of track the history and see what was Im important in subcultures and to people that you would not find out from like reading a newspaper yeah, it's almost sort of an alternate history of your community if you if you're lucky enough to be able to look back through them. Definitely, yeah, that's amazing. So to get the zines into the Vancouver Public Library, do they find local zine makers and solicit like, give us your zines, bring us your zines, or this is something that's really funny. Yeah, um, I think is because buying zines for libraries is something that libraries have a hard time doing sometimes, yeah. like or at least like public libraries or academic libraries, because you can't go to most zinesters and say can i use my credit card yeah <laughs> or like you can't have it go through like the purchasing section because they generally only deal with cash a lot of the time mm -hmm. so public libraries will get a lot of stuff from donations mm -hmm. but they also do have funds um for purchasing libraries and i think i've i've heard about uh like a session or a workshop at a, at a zine event that was like t trying to tell public librarians how to use petty cash to purchase zines for your <laughs> library. <laughs> because that really is the best way. So as an example of how it can be really frustrating for, for libraries to get zines, when I was at the Portland Zine Symposium a few years ago, uh, the Multoma County, County Library, which is the library system in, in Portland and around there, was buying zines from people, which is awesome. Like they have mm -hmm. a really big collection. It's in a bunch of their different branches. Um, but to buy them, they were like, oh, we'll send you a check or something. And we need your social security number. And I'm like, I'm not an American. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I live in Canada. Uh, and so it was really hard for them to be able to, to buy stuff from people that don't have that information. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that that in some cases leads to, you have to be sort of passionate as a librarian about getting these into your collection to successfully get them into your collection, right? I think once people know that you have a collection or mm -hmm. you want to start one, a lot of people will donate zines to you. Hmm. A lot, it, in my experience from volunteering at zine libraries, you get a lot of stuff donated to you. You will show up one day and there'll just be like a bag or a box of stuff at the door. <laughs> 
Awesome. Um, but also, there's a zine librarian mailing list on Yahoo, and people are often saying, hey, we've got these extra zines. We can send them to you if you pay shipping, like hmm. postage. Or alternatively, we're looking for zines. Do you have any extra to send us? Also, at the ALA conference, the American Library Association conference every summer, there's the zine pavilion. And in the past, we've run raffles there for people that want to start a zine collection. And so what we will do is we will send them a couple hundred zines uh, that we've collected for this purpose to start off a collection, which mm. is really neat. But as an example of all the zines that people can get, the IPRC in Portland, which is the Independent Publishing Resource Center, uh, is now running a yearly 24-hour zine cataloging marathon. <laughs> and this is happening next month in, I think, March 22nd to 23rd, the Saturday and Sunday. And it's they've, like, gamified it to a really neat way. Hmm. So you go down and you get points for every zine you catalog and for cataloging certain types of zines. And you get, like, there's an award system and, like, digital badges. And so this and, like, is to create, actual prizes. like, a repository of records that Like, they've got a lot use. of stuff that's cataloged already. Hmm. Like, they have a really big collection. But... They also have apparently ten thousand uncatalogued zines. Wow, that's that's a big job. It is, <laughs> and it's probably another one of those things that, mm. like fiction or like certain kinds of fiction, gets shunted to the side in terms of cataloging priorities in libraries, right? It's really hard to catalog zines because mm. there isn't a world cat for yeah. zines. So every zine you catalog is not—it's not copy cataloging. You're generally going to be doing all of the cataloging yourself. Hmm. There is some work being done on creating like an online shared database of zine cat like, well i would imagine that contest you're talking about is a big part of populating something like that right no? it, it might be yeah. but the thing is that each zine library that exists also has different cataloging style right hmm. and you also run into problems where some people are going to put emphasis on certain aspects of it so like uh a there's for example the queer zine archive project hmm. has a lot of queer zines and they're going to put more emphasis well not a lot of they have only have queer zines really yeah uh emphasis on that sort of thing and so they're going to be looking for different sort of they're going to put stuff into different categories than a mm -hmm. more general zine library would have which i guess is not that different from just the fact that from library to library based in your community the the emphasis or the criteria for building your collection change it, it, right? it, it does but you another problem with cataloging zines is that you also don't have the information you need to catalog them. Right. So Who's the author? you might not have Who's an author. Birth? You yeah. might not have a date, a year of publication. Mm -hmm. I actually just got yelled at by a friend of mine uh, for not putting a year of publication in Two-Fisted Librarians, number one. <laughs> She's like, I'm cataloging this for the ZAP, uh, which is the zine archiving project. I can't remember the exact, down in cool. Seattle. He's like, I'm cataloging this and there's no date in it. When did you publish this? I'm like, last year. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's going to have to put like a, what, a 400, 700, some kind of field in there that's, you know, notes based on the research he did by calling you and it gets all kinds yeah, of Yeah, 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 right? definitely. Um, we should know what number that field is. But but, I but yeah, so there's, there's all these different things where like you don't know where it was published or when it was published or any of this information. Mm -hmm. um, so it can make cataloging stuff really difficult. Yeah. And you also generally have to read the entire zine before you can cataloging, catalog it because you don't know what it's about. That's true. It's not like it's going to necessarily be on just one theme or just yeah. one topic. And right? you can't just like read the back of it because they usually don't have blurbs yeah. on the back of them. <laughs> the back is premium real estate, right? There's probably just more content there. Uh, frequently there is, yes. So, I, I mean, the first I sort of heard of this in terms of... Um, it being part of the library world was two-fisted librarians when you started this last year. What made you want to do this at Slice? Like, what made you think that? I don't, like, I really enjoy pulp fiction. Like, yeah. the sort of, like, genre fiction, like, science fiction and fantasy and, like, people punching each other, which I think is, like, funny, <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Um, and anytime I've ever tried to write fiction, it's always been, like, terrible and uh, of those genres. And I thought, to kind of counteract the the common librarian stereotype, mm -hmm. which is, you know, meek and mild and whatever, that it would be funny to have two-fisted librarians as this, like, you yeah. know, more rough and ready, ready to fight librarian <laughs> idea. Um, and the title... Yeah, I read the link to the TV Tropes page that you put on the... Yeah. And, and the title, Two-Fisted... Um, comes from Two-Fisted Tales, mm -hmm. which was an EC war comic back in the 50s. Hmm. And so I just thought it was a funny title to have. And I've seen it used 
like the two fisted used for other things. Like just I don't I can't remember an example, but like two fisted. Yeah, no, and you're right. It really whatever. is a counteraction to that sort of stereotype. Um, but I'm also I think there's sort of a revival of interest in like old pulp style genre fiction. Mm -hmm. um, one example is the Thrilling Adventure Hour, yeah. which is full of pulp style fiction. And I really enjoy that. Hmm. And I've all I've really enjoyed that sort of thing for like a while, like years. Um, I'm I've read like a Doc Savage fake biography. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting, too, because it's such a. I don't know, it might just be the experience I have of the media around me, but it really does seem like we're in an era now where it's it's easy to create things. And so there's extra pressure on you as someone who might want to create something to create something, you know, amazing. And, and this sort of, this sort of take, this sort of pulp kind of funny sci-fi take really takes some of that stress off of you. It's supposed to be kind of bad. It's supposed to be funny for reasons that aren't intentional. It's maybe. not and, literary. Yeah. But another thing was that I heard from so many people in library school that they used to write stuff. Yeah. And that they don't anymore. And yeah. I'm like, you should keep writing things. <laughs> and here's an excuse for you to write something for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. It's such a short trip from idea and inspiration to being able to put the thing together. It's great. I'm looking at it right now and it looks amazing. I'm yeah. looking forward to reading my copy finally. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I really want to encourage more people to create as well. It makes me sad when people say, when I would meet people at Xena events saying like, oh, I don't know anything to make a Xena about. I'm like, yes, you do. You know something that you could do a Xena about. It really doesn't matter what. Uh, and it's the same with art creation, which is like anybody can make art if they want yeah. to. Just because you can't draw super well doesn't mean you can't do it. And also the only way to get better is to practice. Yeah. And, and there's such a... That's such a popular myth of like our time that you're either gifted or you're not. You're either going to make it to the top or it's not worth trying. I think that's the thing with zines is that I really like doing it because there's a lot less pressure. Yeah. It's like it's like if I fail, well, like, oh, no, I made 50 copies of a zine and no one emailed me about it. <laughs> and that, I mean, again, bringing it back to the libraries, that fits so well with the especially public librarian, but I think all librarian attitude of wanting to empower people to find what they need, to have the skills to create what they want to create. Like it fits in so well. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also, you also see examples of zines being used as sort of alternative methods of like in education. So like instead mm -hmm. of having them write an exam or something, produce a zine that tells me what you learned. Yeah that does lead to the problem of how do you grade something like this, <laughs> uh, which has led to a lot of debate. And, and I found a, a rubric for zine creation. I was just going to say, as long as you start with a strong rubric. No, not no. at all. You don't want that at all because then you're, you're saying there's only one way to do this. Yeah, no, you would have to, I would imagine, be very careful about leaving some open space. And so I found yeah. this rubric and it was like a Google doc that I found through Google search. So I don't even know what it was connected to at all it mm -hmm. was some sort of school assignment but there was no information about where it came from and just like looking through it i was just like okay so the person that's teaching this class has a very strong idea of what a zine is mm -hmm. and if you strayed from that idea you would not get a good mark mm -hmm. and that's something i really dislike yeah, um, yeah that and so really the point. for two-fisted librarians that was something where people were like well do i have to write a science fiction story i'm like no you, you can write as long as it has a librarian in it or a library it can be about anything like my personal idea is that it should be completely ridiculous but if you want to write me a romance story written in a library that's also fine because there are also pulp romances yeah um but i personally would rather write it about a shark who was a librarian <laughs> as as an example wait so is that in this one or is that an idea for an upcoming story that's an idea that you you can take it if you want <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I did before the first issue came out was I like just brainstormed a bunch of titles for zines mm. for not zines for stories that were like librarian themed and a couple of them made it into this one. So there's like um, shelf harm, which <laughs> I love and meta danger, which yeah, I also liked as well. But and there were a whole bunch of other ones that I can't even remember now, but it was just really fun to create these terrible puns that were like <laughs> library themed. Um, I think like labyrintharian or something was one of them. Yeah. There's no one who appreciates those kinds of terrible, terrible puns more than librarians. 
the cover you might be interested to know is actually from an old EC horror comic as well. Um, it's from an issue of Shock Suspense Stories, published in the 50s, that was about a, a killer in the library. And it was even turned into like an episode of Tales from the Crypt in the 90s. I think it was Tales from the Crypt. It would be so interesting to look back at sort of the science fiction pocket of zines, because they must be so related to the pulp magazines that were being published. There's, the a, there's a really neat, if you, um, I think it's the Iowa State Library mm -hmm. um, in Iowa City, has the Rusty Haviland collection, and they've got a, um, a a Tumblr set up for this, which you can like probably link to in the description or whatever of this well, podcast. We're going we're to be uh, hitting you up for links as soon as this is over. And so they got donated this massive collection of science fiction stuff from this guy who was this huge in the fan community for sci-fi from the 30s up to like the 2000s. Wow. So like road trip, to 80 <laughs> years of stuff. And so I got to look at a bunch of this when I was oh there because I was there for the, the Zine Library and Unconference last summer. Yeah. And it was just like he, he's got fanzines from the 30s and like using these weird old like reproduction formats. They were like, how did they reproduce this cover? Like we don't understand. And they, so they had to go and do research to find out how they actually like reproduced <laughs> images and stuff. Um, but there's also like all those like letters and, and lots of other stuff in the collection. It's really neat to see. Wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah, too bad. And it's an archive. <laughs> yeah, it's just that right? was just one person's stuff. That's amazing. Um, I know that there's also at UBC Rare Books and Special Collections. There's there is a sci-fi collection in there as well, mm -hmm. and I'm not exactly sure what's in it. Uh, it's yeah. Well, it's probably worth going to take a look at. Thank you so much for talking to us about those. I could talk about zines all day, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so glad you came and talked to us about it. Thank you. No problem. What a great talk. Yeah, that was fantastic. I yeah. learned so much about zines. Yeah, it's it's really cool. He he also brought over a few for us to look at. So after we were done the interview, we spent a little bit of time just uh, just reading the zines he brought over. Yeah, which were all pretty awesome and, and really ran the gamut, like he was saying. I mean, even, even though he picked out ones to bring to share with us that were very library and archives themed, mm -hmm. they still were so diverse, which was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's a really, really interesting thing. So if your local libraries have zine collections, I highly recommend you go check it out. Or if it's something that you're interested in creating yourself, let us know. Uh, we'd love to talk about it. Uh, if you wanted to send us a copy, we'll, mm -hmm. we, can, we can figure that out and stuff. Um, and one of the things I really love about zines is, is something Matthew was talking about, is that idea that it doesn't have to be perfect. And, and yeah. just, just create. Create anything you can. Yeah, and Make um, a thing. Make a thing. It doesn't have to be you know, full of pressure. And if this we get enough of that in the other areas. <laughs> if this has inspired you to make a thing, let us know what you've made. Oh, yeah. We'd love to hear about mm -hmm. it hear about it, link to it, all those kinds of things. Um, speaking of linking to various things, we have some social media updates as usual. Um, shout outs to a few folks on Tumblr who've gotten in touch with us to let us know how much they like this show. Uh, Say it or I will on Tumblr is one of the folks who got in touch with us and she was telling us that she catches herself talking to us while she's listening, which is so <laughs> awesome. I really <laughs> wish that we could, you know, capture those. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to have conversations about <laughs> <laughs> just just tweet at us, right? Yeah. We were talking about to Michael about that. He wants to catch up on the show and live tweet the episodes as he's watching them, even though it's not live in any sense, except that yeah. he's listening to them at that moment. You guys should just randomly do that. Tweet your responses. I don't <laughs> care what episode you're on. We remember Absolutely. what we talked about most of the time. <laughs> We've also gotten a couple of really nice messages from um, SMC Chick Eleven, also on Tumblr. She's uh, an MLIS student down in the states, and in addition to letting us know that she enjoyed the show and sharing some. Um, notes with us from her institution which is also as we were talking about in episode 20 uh, a no gloves institution so mm -hmm. they handle their rare and special collections uh, with their hands just like we do at UBC um, she also sent us another message asking if she could use some clips from our Tumblr episode way back in episode 2 mm -hmm. in a presentation she was doing which we were happy to have her do and just so that all of you know the show is available under a cc share like attribution license so mm -hmm. as long as you let people know that you got it from us feel free to make any use of our content that you want absolutely yeah. so i guess on twitter we're climbing slowly and slowly ever closer to that 100 follower mark that we are <laughs> so keen to have 
Uh, so if you haven't followed us on Twitter yet as well and you'd like to, um, we'd love to have you there. And you can tweet at us at SS Librarianship. Um, if you want to get in contact with us any other way, uh, all of our information is on our website at sslibrarianship.com. If you wanted to learn more about Matthew Murray, um, our guest today on Zines, he's a very interesting guy. And he's, and he's juggling very involved in a lot of stuff. He juggles a lot of projects. We started to make a list of like him on Twitter and Tumblr and his websites. And then we thought, eh, let's just link to his central website. And he's got all of the amazing things he's doing there. <laughs> yeah. So you can get to his website, thematthewmurray.weebly.com. And that will link you out to all of his various projects. Yeah, and we'll toss a link to that in the show notes. And Matthew is also has promised to send us more links to zine-related things. So we'll include those there for you as well. And as always, a big thank you to Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song, Glasses, off the album Artificial Heart. Uh, I have a standing invitation now to go over to Melanie's place and experience the full unboxing of the level four edition of Artificial Heart. So I will be doing that and I will report back. Yeah, so I guess that is everything for us this week. I hope you all had a lovely Valentine's Day mm. full of whatever kind of love you have in your life. doesn't have to be romantic love because that's gross. <laughs> um, but I hope I hope everybody had a lovely time. So as always, be happy, be healthy, be safe, and uh, we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. So much to say, I forget to start. There goes the day, as it passes, forget the feeling.